Well, good morning, y'all. <laughs> you know, every time I see Dawn, Lord, whatever she's drinking, I'd sure like some of it. <laughs> Especially as I'm getting older. <laughs> Recently, it's caught my attention how many times the Apostle Paul urges Christians to follow his example. To the Corinthians, he wrote, You may have many tutors or teachers, but you can only have one father. And he said, I've become your father. The Greek word there is genao, which means I begot you through the gospel. Therefore, he says, follow my example. Do the things you've seen and heard in me. And then later in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Be imitators of me, as I am an imitator, uh, imitator of Christ. And of the Philippians, he wrote, The things you have heard and seen in me. Follow my example. And later, similar things. Four times Paul said, Follow my example. To the Philippians, he said, Notice those who are living a life other than by the example I set. Mark them, he said. To Timothy, he wrote, Don't let people despise your youth, but be an example of them in word and faith and chastity. Set an example for them. And Peter wrote to the elders, don't lord it over those given to your charge, but be examples. Being an example is very important. Remember Peter writing to the churches of his day said, You have not seen Christ, and yet you love him. Even though you have not yet seen him, you believe in him. After Jesus' ascension, the only ones that ever saw Jesus were those to whom he appeared in some kind of a vision. And so it is important for those of us who know him, who love him, and who serve him to be examples for the world to look at. There are some people, the only Bible they will ever read is your life. And the only time anybody will ever consider Jesus Christ is because they see an example in the life of one who serves him. Since Paul urged us to follow his example, this morning let's think a bit about that man's life and some of the traits that he had that we might emulate. When we first meet him, he is a man who believes with all of his heart that the law of Moses is the will of God. And any Jew who is not following the law of Moses is living in disobedience to God. He wrote, he said, I, well, I, I'm, I'm the perfect one, really, of a follower of the, of the law of Moses. I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm, he spoke of his tribe, and he said, when it comes to the law, faultless. In other words, I was absolutely perfect as a Jew. Because of that conviction, 
he began to see himself in many ways like one of the Old Testament prophets. That not only was he a passionate follower of the law, it became his duty in some way to enforce it and to execute those who were bringing some kind of blasphemy into the kingdom. He could recall the time when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and saw the people worshiping a golden calf and he broke them and said, Everyone who's on God's side, come to me. And Moses and the Levites slew 3,000 Jewish men because they were worshiping some god other than Yahweh. We think of the time that the Israelites were camping at Shittim. And the Moabites said, nothing has been able to stop the Israelites, and it must be their God. Some way we must draw them away from that God. And so the Moabite women began seducing the Hebrew men. And a part of that seduction was leading them into the worship of their God, Baal Peor. And God said to Moses, have the judges of every tribe gather together all the men who have ever copulated with a Moabite woman and bowed the knee to Baal Beor and killed them. One man was so brazen that he brought a Moabite woman into the tent, and as they were together having sexual intercourse, a man took a spear and thrust them through belly to belly. When Elijah became driven of God and motivated of God to do something about the prophets of Baal that Jezebel had brought into the land. There was that contest that took place on Mount Carmel. Build an altar to Baal and put wood on it. I'll build an altar to Yahweh and we'll put wood on it. You pray to Baal and see if he'll send down fire and consume your altar. All day long they prayed, they shouted, they cried, they slashed themselves with knives trying to get the attention of Baal. Elijah said maybe he's off on a hunting trip, he might be napping. Nothing happened. Toward the end of the day he spoke unto God and he said, Everyone take water and pour it on the altar of Jehovah. The water was poured to the point it ran down the bottom. He spoke to God. Fire came from heaven and consumed the altar. And Elijah said, don't let one prophet of Baal escape. And they slew 450 prophets of Baal. Saul of Tarsus saw himself to operate in the form of an Old Testament prophet obligated in some way to enforce the law of Moses and to purge Judaism from the blasphemy of Christianity that was calling the Jews to a false god. You remember when the council in anger took Stephen out and stoned him to death. Saul of Tarsus held the cloaks of those who threw the stones then in Acts 9 immediately says, And Paul therefore approved of all who were killing him. He began to capture Christians, hauling them out of their house. And it says he went forth breathing 
threats, and murder against Christians. He later wrote that every time they were being judged, I voted for the death penalty. He dedicated himself to eradicating what he thought was the false religion of Christianity from all of Israel. Here is a man who with his whole heart, his whole being, was zealous for the truth as he understood it, even though he was wrong. What an example to be so dedicated to the truth. And then something happened. We spoke of this the last time we are here as he was traveling to Damascus with warrants to arrest Christians. Just as he approached the city, the bright light shone about him so intense he fell to the ground. Those that were with him fell back. He heard a voice. They heard a sound that didn't understand it. And the voice said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then told him to go into Damascus and wait till he was told what to do. For three days and three nights, he fasted no food, no water. And on the third day, God said to Ananias, I want you to go. There's a man over here. He's blind. He got blind from the bright light. And I said, wait a minute, Lord, you don't know who that guy is. <laughs> He's the one who's been killing all of us. God said to Ananias, he's a chosen vessel, go to him. In Acts 9, we have the record of the event, not much about the dialogue, but he came and said, Brother Saul, receive thy sight, and scales fell from his eyes, and then he took him out and baptized him. Acts 22, Paul from the stairs of the tower of Antonio in the temple spoke to the people in the courtyard before and in that particular account he, he elaborates more on what Ananias said to him concluding with why tarriest thou arise and be immersed and wash away your sins which he did. In Acts 26 before Agrippa he focuses more on the very words of Jesus and about the call that was given to him to be a witness to kings and Gentiles. And he said, I have not been unfaithful to that vision. And so here's a man who after he learned, the, he left the truth and came to know the one who is the truth. Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. He dedicated himself to the one who is the truth. The same way he had been dedicated to the truth as he had falsely understood it before. Notice his temperament didn't change. <laughs> he stayed the same type A driven personality he had before. Only now with a whole different purpose. It's interesting looking back over the years of different people I've worked with in, in, the, in the years of ministry to see how many times we've seen someone come to Christ that has had certain traits that after conversion those traits were still there but they had a whole different purpose for why they were used. 
As I was thinking about that this morning, I remembered one man. He was a Texan. He came up from Texas. He wore a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, had a big mustache, always had a cigar in his mouth. You never saw him without a stogie. He was a gambler, a loan shark. <laughs> he came to Tulsa because of the refineries, and he thought the employees of the refineries would be a good target. And they were. He'd involve them in poker games. Then next payday, he'd show up with his pistol to collect. He always collected. This man actually won a Tulsa business in a poker game. I'll not tell you the name of that business, but he kept it the rest of his life. Whiskey drinker, a driven man. One point, he married a woman with two teenage children. And they moved into the neighborhood around the Bel Air Christian Church. Now, I've tried to remember exactly the events that led to his conversion. I can't. But I had the privilege of immersing that man into Jesus Christ and in time his wife and the teenage children. That man never touched a drop of whiskey again. He never played poker ever again. But the same man he was before was now owned by Jesus. And his passion was to take that same drive and win people to Christ. I've been with him out doing evangelistic work. I remember one night we were driving in the car and he had his stogie smoked up. And the side of my face started itching in reaction to the smoke. Which surprised me because I grew up in a home where cigar smoke was just everywhere. My, I never saw my dad without a cigar in his mouth unless he was asleep or eating. But for some reason, that man's uh, cigar smoke was getting to me. This man would go out on Saturday morning and knock on door after door after door. He'd go so early, he'd get some people out of bed, they'd show up in their bedclothes. And he had this amazing ability to get into their home and talk to them about Christ. And the next day, go pick them up and bring them to church where they'd hear the gospel except Jesus. And I'd have the privilege of immersing them into Christ. The same man he was before in some ways, but totally different in others. Let me tell you something, whoever you were before conversion, whatever gifts you have, whatever temperament with which you were born, what a wonderful thing it is to see the Holy Spirit get that and use it for the reason you had been given it in the first place. And that was true of Saul of Tarsus, who became later the Apostle Paul. To the degree... That here was a man who was willing, if need be, to suffer and die for Christ. You know, I wonder how many of those persecuted Christians prayed for him. After all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said, Bless those who persecute you and pray for those who despitefully use you. I wonder how many Christians were praying, not just that he wouldn't kill them, but God, deliver this man. I wonder if any did. But God, for reasons known only to God, chose sovereignly 
to reach out and grab hold of this man and change him for the rest of his life. Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. And so he was as equally devoted to the one whom he persecuted as he had been before. One thing that stands out in the letters of Paul is this. He was tremendously aware of the grace of God. We can only imagine how many times in the dark hours of the night he thought back over his previous life. How many of those who now are his brothers and sisters who are in heaven, whom he arrested, dragged out of their houses, and been responsible for their deaths? Oh God, how could I have done this? How can you ever forgive me, dear God? Can you just imagine the remorse this man must have felt and so a primary message in all of his epistles is grace if I counted correctly I found 37 times in Paul's epistles that he spoke of grace (laughs) not say because we're good enough but it is by grace through faith You ever have moments like that? (laughs) I do. I do. I think back when I was younger and some of the things I've done, God, how could you ever forgive me? The people I've hurt, the things I've done through my words that certainly did not reflect you. Oh, my God, I thank you for your grace. We can echo the psalmist who said, Remember not the sins of my youth. How wonderful. How wonderful is God's marvelous, marvelous grace. You know, there's an advantage to being 88 years old. Actually, 87, I'll be 88. By the way, Did you know that that rascal back there, Herb Jordan, I've been running for a year to try to catch up with him. And the 5th of October, I will. He's 88 and I'll be 88. But you know what that rascal's going to do? Two and a half weeks later, he's going to be 89. (laughs) And I'll be after him again. Now, the advantage, of course, both of us bow to Dorothy. (laughs) Do you know advantage of living as long as Dorothy has and Herb has and I have? Jesus has had more years for the Holy Spirit to transform us. And every year living with fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we more and more conform to the image of of Jesus Christ. Praise his holy name. When I was younger and used to lead songs for evangelistic meetings and revival meetings, 
looking back now and what was done, often the thing that was done was not paying attention to the words so much as it would be the mood of the music and the progression of chords and how you could move the congregation with the music and the words just happened to be a vehicle. That's something I regret. (laughs) But now that I'm older, how many times have those words come back to me with meaning? One song that was sung when I was a teenager to a, kind of a waltz lilt, and it was so singable. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. Oh, thou spirit divine, all my nature refine. Till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. My prayer is when somebody meets me for the first time, They'll not meet Jim Garrett, but they'll meet Jesus Christ. That became true of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Henceforth, it is not I that liveth, but the life that I live, I live by faith in him who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, yes, God's grace came to mean everything to him. Not only that, he realized that it was by God's grace that he was able to minister to the Romans, he wrote, through the grace given to me, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think is to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. See, he recognized it was merely only by the grace of God was he able to minister. Romans 15, 15. I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again why Because of the grace that was given me from God. Anyone who is truly effective in ministry, it is because the grace of God gives that ability and works through you. Another important example that Paul set for us was his transparency about his failures. Last Sunday, Jim Grinnell referenced this. Paul said, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity, the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice plural members, not any particular one. 
So here was a man who was saying, follow my example. And one of my examples is this. Admit you're not perfect. To the Philippians, he wrote about his own pursuit. He said, I'm trying to really participate in the resurrection power, but also the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And he finally said, I have not attained, but I'm pressing on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he said, all of you who will be perfect, be thus mighty. In other words, if you're on the journey in God's eyes, it's perfect. But admit you're not there. I don't know about you, but when I sit in the dark hours of the morning asking God to audit my life, every single morning he takes me to a corner of the basement of my soul and shows someplace self is ruling and he isn't. And then the frustrating thing is the next morning he shows me the same thing. <laughs> It's still there. Oh, my God. Let's not hide the fact that we aren't perfect. But thank God that in spite of that, he loves us, accepts us, and uses us. Another example that Paul clearly pointed out was the example he set for responsible living. Here's an interesting thing. Paul was a team leader. At first it was Barnabas and Saul, and then it became Paul and Barnabas. Temp Mark started, and then Mark left them. Sometimes it was Paul and Silas and Timothy. Paul was a team leader, but interesting, Paul is the man who got a job and supported the team. Remember the early days at TCF, at least my early days here, when the shepherding movement was trying to find ground, and there were some in the church that had this idea that everybody had to have a discipler, and it was a pyramid, and you you tithe to your discipler, and he tied to his, and finally the guy at the top of the heap got the last tithe, and he's the one that might tithe to the church, but don't tithe to the church. Tithe to your discipler. Paul turned that upside down. <laughs> I'm the team leader. I'll get a job and support the team. And he did. He wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, you know, while I was among you, I had the right to ask you to support me, but I didn't. I set an example for you. I worked with my own hands. I didn't eat anybody's bread. I worked with my own hands. And he said, follow my example. Do the same thing a man who won't work shouldn't eat. He set the example of responsible living Caring for himself. And you know, Paul is a wonderful example of the man who was certain about the outcome of a life lived faithfully. Remember again to the Philippians, he said, I know it's better for you if I stick around. (laughs) Better for me if I die and go on. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Better for me to die and be in the presence of Christ. To Timothy, probably the very last letter he wrote in 2 Timothy, he said, I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life. And not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. 
Oh, how wonderful it is. I know when Jesus finally lets me come home, I will go home. And I will see him. And I will see my dear wife. Others that have gone before. I know where I'm going. Do you know where you will spend eternity? There's no greater question I can ask you than that one. Paul set such a wonderful example for us. And we might heed his words to follow his example, but more important than wanting to be like Paul, we need to be like Jesus. That's our goal. It's really fitting for us to ask, are we following Christ in such a way that we could say to someone, imitate me the way I imitate Christ? If those about us followed our example, what would this world look like? Something serious to think about, isn't it? But we can set forth, I pray, our example before the world, not with pride, but because by the grace of God we are who we are. May God be praised. Thank you, Jim.